Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains, and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Today I am joined by a woman who travelled the world chasing enlightenment. Renee Linnell, author of The Burn Zone, is going to share her journey with us. The most shocking part of her journey was that without realising it, she's actually been part of a cult. I'm going to read you something from her book that I could relate to. Travellers, true travellers, are all the same. All unbound, free, liquid, formless, open ready to let life carry them where it will, choosing freedom over security, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to have no idea what the next moment will bring. They simply surf the flow of life. Renee's book is releasing today. Welcome to With You Every Step, Renee. Thank you, Michelle. It's so nice to be here. And congratulations on the release of your book, which is today. I know. It's amazing. It's been six years in the making. Wow. It's very exciting for you. I really love that passage that I just read out. I could relate to it so much, especially the simply surf the flow of life. And I feel that's definitely what travelers do. You have no choice when you're out there by yourself. You've just got to surf that flow, right? Yes. And I really believe your spirit, your spirit tells you when to go and where to go and the perfect timing. So you started traveling at a very young age. Yes. You grew up in the Bahamas, is that right? I did, on a boat, yes. Wow, I've been to the Bahamas. I went to Nassau on a cruise ship and it was beautiful. I couldn't imagine living there. We would go there for supplies and otherwise we were in the out islands, the tiny islands. Which I'm sure are so much more beautiful because there's less people there. Yes. We were, a lot of times we were the only white family around. And so you've been to more than 50 countries. Yes. I stopped counting at 50. So you started traveling by yourself? I did. When I was 15 years old, my father had just died and my mother was drinking herself to death and I was desperate to get out of the house. And my twin brother had just gotten back from a surf trip to Costa Rica. It was back in 1989. And I really wanted to go. And so I asked my mom if I could go. And she was getting ready to go on a date. And she was drunk already. And she said, sure, honey. So I drove to the airport. And I left a sticky note on the fridge. Um, going to Costa Rica. I'll be back in about a week. And At 15. there weren't Yes. Wow. And there weren't there weren't cell phones then. So she couldn't contact me. And I had an older well, I had an older friend drive me. She dropped me off. And I flew to Costa Rica. And I am so fortunate. I got there in the middle of the night. I hitchhiked with a bus full of German tourists to the oh beach. Oh my gosh, which I wouldn't <laughs> recommend anyone doing today. But you had such confidence at 15. You know, I think my father had raised me to be a risk taker. He had survived five invasions in World War II as captain of a landing craft infantry. And he really believed that every day alive was a blessing. And so he took a lot of risks because he understood that we never knew which day was going to be our last. And he passed that on to me. And I think I was so desperate to get away from my mother and living at home without my dad and with my mother was so painful that... I wasn't afraid. Mm. 
Yeah, I was reading your book and the section when you talk about your dad passing, I was bawling my eyes out. My dad just passed away a few months ago. Oh, and it still oh, makes me still makes so me cry. Sorry. But the, oh, sorry. The relationship that you had sounds very similar. And the conversation that you had with your dad before he passed was nearly exactly the same that I had with my dad. So it was really, really hit home for me. And it was beautiful, but it is, it's a hard loss. It is a hard loss, yes. So you were in Costa Rica? Yes, for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so where did you go? If, you, if you're 15, it blows my mind. You get there, you hitchhike. Where did you hitchhike to? Oh my gosh, I was so, you know, people aren't sure if we have guardian angels and I have to say we definitely do. I hitchhiked to Hako Beach. I got there, back then there was only one hotel there, nobody spoke English. And I got there about maybe 2.33 in the morning and found this adorable little, like a, a local family owned a little bed and breakfast and they took me in and I felt really safe there. And then I met American surfers and I learned how to surf. I wasn't a very good surfer, but I had brought a surfboard. And then they just took me all over. A couple of expats, I think, that had been escaping the U.S. because of taxes. Um, they were older than I was and they really took care of me. And so that was the, the start of your thirst for travel? It was. When I got home, I was changed and I realized that it seems traveling seemed like this big, scary thing, but I had just done it all on my own. And it was not only easy, but the people that were put in my path were so magical and so wonderful. I had ended up hitchhiking all over the country and everyone that I met was wonderful. And again, I was really lucky. I would die if a daughter of mine did that at 15 years old. <laughs> I <laughs> Hearing that, you think, wow. But I also do think, though, that the world was a different place then. And it was. it was more acceptable to do that. I had this conversation with my mum the other day, actually, about hitchhiking. And she was talking about, you know, oh, when I was younger, it was just the thing that everybody did, you know. And then in Australia, we had some murders that came with that. And that kind of changed things. But it was definitely very acceptable. Where now, absolutely not. Oof, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then you go back to your family. When was the next trip that you did? Also going back on that, I do feel, and I think that people that have never traveled by themselves might not understand how much it changes the person you are. It does because you break free of this mold. And especially at 15 years old, my identity was struggling teenager in high school. And I was smaller than the rest of the kids and kind of nerdy and then damaged because my father had died. And, and so I was able to leave that persona and be whoever I wanted to be in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And I realized, so then I came back and I was daydreaming and staring up at the map in history class and planning all my trips but I really, I had this new self-confidence. Like it doesn't matter what the kids at school think. I know that I can pack a bag and take off and go anywhere and have a completely different experience. Mm. And it, it is the confidence of having the control and knowing yes. that you made that decision. You put yourself out there for other people and you met these people that you would never have met otherwise. Yes. And I realized the more that I traveled alone, that I could be whoever I wanted to be when I was out traveling the world. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Okay. 
15 blows my mind. (laughs) How many weeks was it? Three, did you say? It was about two. And oh my gosh, I called my mother from a payphone and she was furious. She said, I didn't know you were serious. I thought you were kidding. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and I but your said, brother had just done it, right? Yes, but he had done it with friends and she okay. knew where he was staying and she knew how to reach him. She was furious with me. And so she, I actually had to have her help me pay for a ticket home to come home. And she picked me up at the airport and she hugged me and she said, I love you so much. Please don't ever do that to me again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one way to get attention though, isn't it? (laughs) Right. It definitely broke through the alcoholism to some real love. Yeah. (laughs) So then your next trip after that, how long was it? The next big trip was that I got offered a modeling job in college. And that job took me all around the world for six months. And so that was not by myself, but that was to, we went to Nepal, which I had never even heard of, which is embarrassing to say, Malaysia, Thailand, Fiji, Cook Islands, Samoa, Australia, New Zealand. That was a good job. It was. On that trip, though, the photographer turned out to be a pathological liar, and he left me stranded at 22,000 feet in the Himalayas. And and I had to find my way down with my boyfriend at the time, following nothing but donkey poop without equipment or a Sherpa. So it was one of the hardest things I ever did physically. And I was 20 years old at the time. So you were doing a photo shoot on the top of the mountain? Well, we were doing photo shoots all over. And it was me in a bikini in, for example, ice caves in New Zealand, or yes, up with the Himalayan mountains behind me, or surfing. I was doing some surfing modeling, but he had said that he wanted, that he would get me a Sherpa to carry my stuff because I hadn't trained to walk for three months in the Himalayas. And we were, we got up to 22,000 feet high which is very high. I don't know what that is in meters. Sorry. Oh, it's really <laughs> high. It is. I think we just did, I just did maybe 16 or 16 or 17,000 feet. And that was huge. That was massive. And again, we, we didn't expect that we were summiting a mountain either. When we did it, we thought we we're going on a nice hike. It was very different and different experience, which I spoke about in my last episode, but yeah, that is quite scary. And I would not have known how to get down if our guide wasn't there. So I can't imagine how you felt trying to get down because they're not really proper paths. No. And it was one of those things where you realize quite quickly that this is a life or death situation. And we realized if we didn't make it down by dark, we weren't going to last through the night. So that definitely goes in the, that was interesting. Never do that again file. (laughs) Yeah, well, surely there was a responsibility. So the guide, no, he wasn't a guide. He was your photographer. He was my photographer and he decided he didn't want to pay for two Sherpas. He only wanted to pay for one. So I put my stuff in his bag that his Sherpa was carrying. And then before we hit the highest part of that pass, we had to hike high and sleep low for two nights to acclimatize. And then the morning that we were going over this pass, we got up at sunrise and started walking and we were walking much faster than they were. So we went on ahead and they never showed up. And then that night it started to snow. So we knew we had to get down the next morning 
you stay in these tiny little huts that the locals build for tourists and they're freezing and there's snow blowing through the cracks. And we were supposed to have these mummy sleeping bags, but I didn't have one. So we only had my boyfriend's because mine was with the Sherpa and the photographer. So one of us had to stay awake while the other one slept because you'd get frostbite if you tried to sleep outside of the mummy sleeping bag. So it was a mess and we didn't have enough food and we didn't have our water froze to ice, which we didn't think about. (laughs) We were completely unprepared. And so we finally did get down and they didn't show up for three days. And it turned out that they had started drinking and got drunk and then had to go back the other way they came to sleep it off. (gasps) Oh my (laughs) gosh, that's terrible. It was terrible. Did he get fired? Well, he couldn't get fired because it was his company, but I took everything. (laughs) Fortunately, my mother had said, if you go on this trip, I'm terrified of you going, but it's such an amazing opportunity that I can't tell you not to go, but I want you to get all the plane tickets from him so that you can leave if it goes bad. And, and she insisted that I have somebody go with me. So that's why my boyfriend went. And so once he showed up, I got my plane tickets and I got my clothes and I was literally walking through the Himalayan mountains with everything stuffed inside my sleeping bag because I didn't have an extra backpack and carrying it in front of me like a baby. Oh my gosh. What a story though. It was. And then I, and then I found somebody with a plane and they flew us out which was amazing and terrifying because we had no idea how competent the pilot was and the plane was so old and rickety. You know, I do say to my listeners, though, as much as you hear in my episode some scary stories, we also want to tell you how to get out of those situations and how I find amazing people can be when they know you are in a bad situation. Amazing. I mean, and that's the thing. I got myself in so many scary situations and I met so many amazing people. I was out in the Maldives all alone, or I guess you're supposed to pronounce it Maldives. And this older man kept surfing with me. And then he took me under his wing and was coaching me into smaller and smaller surfboards because I'd been riding a longboard. And it was Yvonne Chernard who owns Patagonia. And he became a really good friend of mine and sponsored me with Patagonia surfboards and clothing. Wow. Yeah. You never know who you're going to meet. (laughs) When I was in, uh, I went to Alcatraz by myself in San Fran and I was on the boat and this lovely couple come and spoke to me and they end up being owners of a massive, big restaurant chain in the US as well. (laughs) I had no idea. They were telling me their story. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Yeah. You just never know who you're going to meet and where it will go. Exactly. Okay. So you have that happen. And you came to Australia, you said. I did. I've been to Australia a number of times. On that trip, we went to Darwin, which I loved. And on another trip, I went to Darwin. And then on another trip, I went surfing. I bought a really old Ford Falcon station wagon and brought my tent and my surfboards. And I just went up the East Coast surfing. And then I hurt myself. And I had to stay out of the water because I cut my foot really badly. And so then I went down through the outback and that was amazing. So did you do all that by yourself? That one I did by myself. Yes. And I met, well, and I met surfers. How did you find doing that coming to Australia by yourself? You know, it's so interesting. So many of the places I went by myself, I would show up 
at uh, in the middle of the night, not even knowing where I was going to stay. And back then, I don't know if they still have that, but they had phones in the airport that went to different youth hostels. Oh, I don't know if they do. No, I don't think they do. Yeah. So I would just walk up to those phones and call a youth hostel and then they would usually send someone to pick me up and I'd get a bed in the dorm room with 10 other people and drag my surfboards in. And by morning I had friends. Were they co-ed dorm rooms? They or? were. Yeah, they were co-ed. Yes. Yeah. I, I choose to never stay in a co-ed because it always freaks me out. And I just think, oh, I don't want the stress of someone trying to hop in my bed in the middle of the night. Did that ever happen to you? Again, it's so amazing that it didn't. Now I prefer the Four Seasons. <laughs> the idea of sleeping at a youth hostel creeps me out. But <laughs> no, I was so safe. I just, I never had any problems. Well, that's good. That's really good. And from what I've heard, most people don't, but it's in my head that I just think, oh, no, I attract the all kind of wrong men and they always <laughs> won't leave me alone once they get talking to me. So I just think, no, I'm better off. And most of the time I do now get my own room in a hostel just so then I've got my own space, but I have the environment of a hostel where you get to meet people and hang out with people that are solo travelers. I would do that too. I much prefer my own space now. Yeah, I think that comes with age though. When you're younger, you don't really care so much. I mean, how old were you at that point? I was still in my 20s. Yeah. yeah. And I think I was actually looking for men to hop in my bed. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it worked out well. <laughs> maybe that's my problem. That's why I'm still single. I need to, I need to go and stay in these rooms maybe. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about the quality, but... <laughs> They sure were nice to look at <laughs> and fun to surf with. <laughs> you know, then you have an instant friend, surf buddy. Yeah. So you surfed the East Coast of Australia. What did you find to be your best surf point? Oh, my gosh. I I don't think I was a good enough surfer then to even know or care. I kind of just paddled out anywhere. I loved, it seems so long ago, I loved Byron Bay mm-hmm. and I loved um Bondi oh okay yeah and Manly I went out to Manly but um in a place I think called Wulgulga but it really is so long ago Mm, yeah it's beautiful the east coast of Australia is is most of Australia is stunning and you mentioned going to Darwin I actually have never been to Darwin it's one of the places I've never been to the northern territory in Australia. I've been to a lot of the East Coast, but I haven't been there yet. And I want to get there. So you went to Uluru? I did. In fact, I did. So I did that with that trip. I ended up doing like a bus tour down through the outback. And then I went to Uluru with my meditation group. And I had the most powerful meditation there, the Great Pyramids, and then at Uluru that I've ever had in my life. That place is so magical. The energy is meant to be phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I had that happen in Sedona in the Red Rocks in the US. I found that place to be really quite strong, filled with beautiful energy. I did too. It's incredibly powerful. I I feel like it's very similar energy to Uluru. It's so intense. In fact, at Sedona that I couldn't sleep there more than three nights. I had to leave early. Beautiful place. So we mentioned earlier and your book talks about trying to search to find enlightenment. How did you end up 
getting kind of mixed in with the wrong people that kind of took advantage of you? That is such an interesting question because it happened slowly. I think like any toxic relationship in the beginning, there's buildup and there's romance and you think you found someone that truly understands you and really sees you and loves you. And then the abuse is really insidious. It comes in slowly over time, but I had been searching my whole life since my father died and I wasn't really even sure what I'd been searching for. I just knew there had to be more than what I was learning in church and in school. And it didn't make sense to me that we fall so deeply in love with each other. And then the people we love die. And that just seemed cruel. And I thought there, there just, there has to be some divine plan and there have to be souls reuniting. And I'd read about saints and mystics talking about it, but nothing that I read kind of filled that void inside of me. And then when I was 33, I walked into this tantric Buddhist meditation seminar without having any idea what I was getting myself into. I'd never really meditated before. I wasn't even really sure what it was. I sat down right as a woman walked onto the stage and I was expecting an older woman with long gray hair and mala beads and a robe. And instead she was a young woman in an Armani business suit with stiletto heels. And she said, she introduced herself and she said, let's meditate. And then I was expecting spa music and she turned on really loud techno from one of the matrix movies. And I closed my eyes to meditate and I felt this incredible energy shoot up my spine and out the top of my head and my whole world went white. And the peace that exploded in my mind was unlike anything I had ever experienced. And I thought, this is what I've been searching for. This is it. I don't care who this woman is. I don't care what she says. I'm home. My search is over. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so then I stuck around, I thought. And the fascinating thing is, I'd been raised Catholic and that just didn't work for me. And as she started talking, she said in the East, people have these really strong spiritual practices, but they're poor. And in the West, people have these really strong careers and make a lot of money, but they're soul sick. And so what I'm going to teach you to do is sharpen your mind through meditation and then use every moment in, in your career as an offering to the divine. And so what happens is you're so focused at work that you get promoted quickly, you make more money, you create a life that helps you meditate better. And then eventually you get back to the world through philanthropy. And so I thought, yeah, this sounds amazing to me. And the more she talked about meditations, she said, it, you sharpen your mind, you make your mind so strongly that so strong that you can walk through the world in peace, regardless of what's going on around you. Yeah, and that does sound enticing to people. Everyone wants to feel that. Right. Yeah, and just that that control that you can't control what other people are doing or what's happening in the world, but you can control what's going on inside your own mind. And and so here was this woman that clearly looked like she was doing what she was saying she was going to teach us to do. And because I never had a strong female presence in my life, I thought, here's this woman who's like an older sister who's going to teach me how to sharpen my mind like the monks do and live in peace and feel that incredible peace inside my mind and have a really great career. Sign me up. So where was this? Was this in the U.S.? It was. It was in California. Okay. 
All right. And so when you say sign me up, did you have to pay anything to be part of this? Well, and that's another big red flag about these types of groups. So at first it was $5 to attend an event. And then eventually she, t and these were public events open to the public. And then she took applications for students and you could sign up to be her student. And so then it became $125 a month for one weekend a month with her. And then eventually $500 a month and then eventually $1,200 a month. Wow. But at this, okay. I, know, I was a professional dancer. So the money I was making was from dancing and performing, teaching dance and performing. And she suggested I become a computer programmer to sharpen my mind. And so I went from making a career as a dancer to becoming a computer programmer. And all these other people were kind of hippies, not really, you know, waiting tables or not making much money and suddenly getting these great careers. So we were able to justify she's the one that helped us get these great careers. So we should be giving her more money as we make more money. Yeah, it's very interesting, the mind control behind it all. It is. And I looked up after all of this, I looked up, uh, did some research on cults. And one of the things that they say is that there is a closed logic so that the logic does make sense as you go through the mind manipulation. Mm. Well, it has to, to be able to relate to it, doesn't it? it? Yes. And they make you think that the thoughts are yours. So in that situation, it's like, well, she's coaching me. I'm making more money. So of course I would give her more. Wow. And how long were you part of that? I was part of it all said and done for six and a half years. Six and a half years. And you traveled with that group too, didn't you? They did this. So, they, you know, and now that I'm out the other side of it, the whole entire story is, is somewhat ridiculous. I cannot believe I stayed in it as long as I did. But we did these power trips and the power trips were supposedly to blast us into higher and higher states of mind that would get us closer to enlightenment. And I wasn't even sure what enlightenment was, but what I thought it was, was that I would live in such pristine peace and quiet inside my mind that I would then radiate that out and everybody that was around me would feel it and feel like they were being touched by the divine and feel calm and happy and peaceful. So I wanted to be like a saint. So I was willing to do whatever it took. And she, each year she took us to a power spot and we had to pay for the cost of the trip. And then we had to pay an additional $10,000 a person that went directly into her bank account. Oh my gosh. Wow. This lady <laughs> was rolling in it. She was, and she had about a hundred people paying her that. And yeah, <laughs> and a wow. hundred people paying $1,200 a month. So she was making, and then she convinced us as we made more money to donate, to offer these gifts. And so she was making some good money. Wow. And at that point, there was nothing that you thought, mm, this doesn't sound right. There were lots of red flags, but you know, it's fascinating because I had this dream life from the outside looking in. I had this dream life as this surf model and professional dancer that was traveling the world and financially secure. But I had this deep soul sickness inside and this emptiness and the sadness that nothing would fill. And I just don't think that there's a lot of dialogue out there about that, about people having it all and still feeling sad inside. Mm. And especially I think in in 
North America and the United States, there is a lot of soul sickness. Yeah, I agree. And I think that also there's that saying that being rich doesn't make you happy. And you see that now with a lot of celebrities and a lot of people with a lot of money either committing suicide or having issues because of that that soul-seeking that you're talking about. Well, and I live in Aspen, which is one of the wealthiest communities in the U.S., and it has the highest suicide rate. It's 7% higher, I believe, than anywhere else. And they call it the end of the road syndrome, and it's because... So many people think, oh, well, when I'm married, I'll be happy. When I have the house, I'll be happy. When I have the kids, I'll be happy. So there's always kind of that when this comes, I'll be happy. And then when you get into a really wealthy community where people say, well, I have it all and I'm still not happy. And because people aren't really talking about it, they think I'm the only one. There's something deeply wrong with me. And they get diagnosed with depression. They get medicated and that doesn't help. So that's a little bit of what... I mean, that's a lot of what I was going through. And every time I wanted to leave this group, I thought, well, I have lived life my way for 33 years and it's just not working for me. And here I am in this situation where it seems like I have a chance to blast through this portal into enlightenment, whatever that is. And then I'll find this happiness that I've been searching for. And I was willing to do whatever it took. But there was also still a, oh, what's the word, you know, kind of they wanted you to keep searching. So you hadn't found it, right? Is that how it kind of kept getting portrayed? Like if you keep doing this, you might get there. Yes. And it's because what I finally realized on the other side of this is that when we still our minds and we let them get very quiet, there's incredible peace there and that we have incredible internal guidance that tells us the answers to all of the questions we have, that we were born that way with our own internal guidance. But what spiritual teachers need is for us to think that the guidance is coming from them and the peace is coming from them. And so I erroneously attributed the peace that I felt from meditation to the spiritual teacher. Yeah, which all along it was within. It was, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the traveling side of you kept making you want more, which I think that's what kind of travel does. It makes you always want more and you always want that feeling of being free. Yes, because then you're not, I, I know when I travel and especially when I travel alone, you're forced to be like a child. You have to really have all of your senses alert and especially when you don't speak the language and you have to, you can't kind of stay in your own little bubble. You have to talk to strangers and you have to be uncomfortable and you're not quite sure what's coming next, which makes you really alive. And I think I notice as I get older, I get so used to being comfortable. I want the food I want and I want the bed I want and, you know, my comfortable PJs. And I feel like that kind of shuts us down. The life force energy doesn't flow through us as much as when we're out in the world, not knowing what's coming next and having to adapt. Mm. And for me, travel is always my safety. So after my dad passed away, I went traveling. When my dad got diagnosed five years ago, I went traveling. And so for me, it's a way of processing as well, because then I, I'm forced to. Yes, I did the same thing right after my mother died. I went to Argentina and rented an apartment and lived all by myself. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought, you're crazy. You have no support structure. And I said, this is the way I do it. It just feels the best for me. So you went to Argentina. Tell me about that. I did. Well, 
I, part of my professional dance career was as an Argentine tango dancer. I had tried to make it in ballet and I couldn't, and I ended up falling into Argentine tango. And so I moved to Argentina and I studied with the masters and I was there when the economy crashed in 2001. I witnessed a run on the banks and total overthrow of the government and fires and rioting in the streets and the peso had been pegged to the US dollar and then it dropped four to one. And so I bought a condo down there for a quarter of the price. Wow. Do you still have that? No, I sold it when I joined the cult. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because one of the things, one of the things they really discouraged was traveling because traveling and especially traveling alone is so empowering, right? So they wanted to kind of take away anything that was empowering. And you let that happen. That's so interesting, isn't it? Something that you had such a passion for. I did. I let surfing fall out of my life, dancing and traveling, all of it. And I let them convince me that if I traveled alone, it would be really dangerous for me. Even though you had done it so many times. Yes. Did you have any other situations happen while you were traveling alone? I did. I got severely electrocuted in the Maldives. Oh my gosh. Um, How did that happen? I got in, I landed in Mali again at midnight and then a random man, I had arranged for someone to pick me up by boat and I got in a boat with a stranger that had a sign that said Renee and traveled across the dark ocean to this atoll, um, where I was met by this amazing, adorable, hilarious, happy Australian man at about two in the morning named Tony, who had gotten shipwrecked there 20 years before and saw how good the waves were and stayed and married a local woman and became Muslim or Hindu. And so he welcomed me and then he showed me to my little hut that I was staying in. And the shower was a pipe that was coming out of the wall with cold water And I'd been traveling for, I don't know, 48 hours. I was dying to take a shower. So I took a shower and then I went to turn the light off by the bed and I was in bare feet, naked, um, still kind of dripping with cold water. And when I went to reach my hand under the lamp, it grabbed, my hand got sucked onto the lamp and I was being jolted with electricity Mm. Because I was standing in water (laughs) barefoot. Wow. And and I just had this thought, okay, you're going to pass out and you'll crack your head open on the tile. So I turned so that I would fall on the bed. And then I used my left hand and I grabbed the lamp out of my right hand and threw it and passed out. Oh my gosh. I know I woke up. It was, it was, and it was incredibly painful. And I woke up and there was a cockroach crawling on my face and I started sobbing and I just said, okay, I'm going home. I'm going home. As soon as it's light, I'm going home. And, and then I heard screaming outside my window and I looked out the, the sun was just coming up. I looked out the window and I saw the best left point break I'd ever seen in my life. And I grabbed my surfboard and my bikini and paddled out and stayed two weeks. Oh, <laughs> What a a change. And that's the thing, right? You can have something traumatic happen and then it's your mindset that will change it. And then you probably had an amazing two weeks. Oh my gosh, that surf break was, I could not believe my eyes when I looked out. I didn't even have a window. I had a hole in the wall, in the wooden wall. And it was so glassy and it was double overhead and there were only a couple of people out. And one of them was that man that owned Patagonia. So you didn't go and get medical help at all for being electrocuted? <laughs> no, no. 
I just paddle. I just put the fins in my surfboard and waxed it up and paddled out. <laughs> Again, I'm guessing you're probably in your 20s, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> early 20s. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. You've got some great stories. I just, everyone says that I have to um, write a second book about all the traveling. Another great story is I got detained in Panama by the militia. I had met some, I was on a surf trip and I met somebody who had an 80 foot trimaran and he was sitting off the coast uh, because he had to renew his visa. And so I talked to him into taking me, I had a friend of me with me at the time, a friend of mine, and we talked him into taking us up and down the coast looking for uh, surf. And then we got pulled over by the militia because they wanted to confiscate the boat and they were holding us at gunpoint. And my friend speaks fluent Spanish and he talked to them. He said that I was a surfer and they didn't believe. And so he said, okay, if she goes wake surfing behind your boat, will you let us go? And they said, yes, I think just to see me in a bikini, but, um, (laughs) they, and they had a confiscated Colombian drug running boat with these humongous engines. And so they pulled me wake surfing. And at one point I fell and they started screaming and I'm thinking, what are they screaming about? And they're like, she's crazy. She's crazy. Get her out of that water. I didn't know it was filled with crocodiles. Oh my (laughs) gosh. And they put you in there thinking that you wouldn't do it because you knew that? Yes. So they thought I knew it and that I was still willing to wake surf behind this boat. And they had their machine guns strapped across their bulletproof vests. And oh my gosh. Anyway, and they let us go. They were true to their word. They let us go and they kept the captain in the boat for a week. And did you see any crocodiles while you were there? No, I didn't. Okay, Thank that's, God. That's good because yeah, they move pretty quick when they want to. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, yeah, definitely have some good stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know we, I was just in the Amazon recently and there's sections where they take you that you can jump in and you know that there's piranhas in there and you know that there's the caimans, which are like crocodiles and you jump in and my heart was racing. I thought, why am I actually doing this? I don't even know why I'm doing this. But then I get out and I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. And I was like, (laughs) really wasn't very smart. I don't know why I just did that. But I think they take you to a section where they know that they're not normally in that area. I think they're more in the mangroves than they are out in the middle. But still, it's the thought of it. Couldn't imagine not knowing that and then thinking, wow, imagine if you just saw a crocodile next to you. Oh, that would be terrible. Yeah, terrifying. (laughs) And so what would you say would be your, well, I kind of hate this question, but I always ask it, your top, let's go maybe top three places that you've been. If I had to pick, and I really think that for me, I I believe in past lives. Um, So when I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, I felt so at home. I had been studying Spanish for years, but I never could speak it. And the first night I was there, I dreamt in Spanish and I woke up fluent. And so, and I love the music and the dancing. I fell right in the tango scene. So definitely Buenos Aires is one, um, Tabarua Island, Fiji, which I I ended up managing, co-managing in my twenties, some of the best surf in the world. That's one. And then I would say Uluru, Australia. Mm, Okay. All right. And am I allowed to... Yeah, sorry. Am I allowed to ask yours? Mine? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, see, it's tough. But 
I would have to say Egypt is definitely up there. I loved Egypt so much. And then I would say probably the Amazon. I had such an amazing feeling as soon as we hopped onto that river, just the, the energy of it was just, oh, it just drew me in. And I remember looking at one of my friends that was with me and said, I can't believe what this feels like. And she said, I know. It's like, wow. So that would have to be up there. And then I'd say Galapagos Islands as well. Oh, I've never been there. I've heard it's amazing. It is so amazing. And again, it's the energy and it's the the love of animals. And I love animals and how much they respect them and how much they kind of run the island. <laughs> and it's really beautiful to see. And then going out and just, we did it more a local way, which was a great way of doing it because we weren't blended in with all the tourists and so we got to kind of go out snorkeling where there was no one else and it was just us and the wildlife and it was just really special so yeah I would probably say those those places as you know when you're going to places at that time you find something you're like this is the best ever right you go somewhere else you're like this is the best ever (laughs) right it's so true so true yeah I'm a real energy person too. And if I feel in that Amazon, have you been to the Amazon? I have. Yeah. In fact, I dragged my mother who hated to travel and my brother who hates to travel. I dragged both of them there and we took a boat. We were on a boat, um, I think for a week and it's amazing. We saw pink dolphin Mm -hmm. and sloths and toucans and I, I just loved it. Yeah. And did you have that same feeling with the energy from the river? I did. Yes. It was just so magical. I didn't want to leave. I didn't either. And that doesn't happen to me very often. Normally I kind of go, okay, I've seen it. I'm good. I'm ready to explore more somewhere else. No, I didn't want to go. I was like, oh, I could just stay here for so much longer. I don't want to go. It's very magical. Yes. What is the main thing you want readers to take away from your book? I love the idea of helping people decide to own their stories. I think that we're all wounded and broken in these really beautiful ways. And we're taught from such a young age that we're not okay the way we are, that we have to blend in, that we have to change in order to be loved and accepted. And I think we're bombarded by messaging that tells us we're not okay the way we are. And so I would really love readers to take away from my book that we're so beautiful the way we are and that we're damaged in the most perfect ways and that we shouldn't be ashamed of our stories, that we should be really proud of them. Mm, That's beautiful. And I totally agree. Every single person is damaged and it just, it's our journey and it's our journey to embrace, I think. And it hurts. Obviously my dad's just passed away. So I felt totally broken this year, but I know that especially he would not want us to let that define us. We have to keep living and make sure that we are still living our best because everybody goes through some kind of heartbreak, being losing a loved one, breaking up in a relationship can feel very much like mourning as well, losing somebody. So there's always different ways that people go through it. And I think your book is a really good example of how you can get through it and how you ended up living the best life that you have. And it's really inspirational. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And people can get it. Where can they find your book? 
Right now it's available through Amazon online in Barnes and Noble. I don't know if you have that. Hopefully it'll make its way to bookstores in Australia. And definitely if you're interested in buying it, please go to your local bookstore and ask for it and they can order it for you. If enough people ask for it, we'll send larger quantities over to Australia. But I, so I just love Australians. In fact, probably 80% of the men I've dated in my life are Australian. If there's one in a town in the US, I I tend to find him. So (laughs) I just must've been Australian in a past life. I think you guys take yourselves way less seriously than Americans and um, just more real. I, I am stereotyping Americans. I love Americans too, but I just really love Aussies. It's so funny because I'm actually more drawn to American men and I find that really funny. And the thing that I'm drawn to about American men is that they do take life a little bit more serious. (laughs) Well, we need it. We need a happy balance, right? Yeah, very true. Very true. And, you know, it is an Aussie thing. We are very chilled and (laughs) that's the difference, I think, with Americans, depending on the part of the US. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the US and I love it and I've done road trips from the Midwest in Iowa all the way down to San Diego and then all the way down to San Antonio, Texas. So I do love the U.S. and I've seen a lot of it. And every part is different. You know, you get like everywhere and you get the really chilled sections and then you get the, you know, people that are not so chilled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And did you find that for you traveling, especially being an American, that especially back then, that people were quite shocked because there is a huge percentage of Americans that don't even have a passport, isn't there? <laughs> yes, people were actually always shocked. And then I did I did find that when I was traveling, if there was one really loud person that wouldn't stop talking, it was an American, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the only other American. But yes, people were always surprised. Because, and the Aussies would say, well, we live so far kind of in the middle of nowhere that once we get off the island, we tend to go for a year at least. And for Americans, I guess, I don't know, there's not as much impetus to go. Yeah, but I think also the amount of leave that you guys get from work is not as big as ours. We get four weeks every year. And so for me, the way I do it, I can actually extend and I end up going for three months. And so I can do that where when I'm in the US and I tell people that they're like, how we get maybe two weeks if we're lucky, but normally we can't even take two weeks together. We have to take one week here and one week there. Well, it's not long enough to come to Australia for a week. You're already traveling for nearly 24 hours. It's so true. Although I, uh, one of the guys I was dating in Australia, I think I was living in California at the time and I still, I would fly over for just five days. And after I did that three times, I said, this relationship is never going to last. It's just too far away. (laughs) It's too hard. I mean, if it's a direct flight from LA to say Melbourne, it's 14 hours. Yeah. Okay. You can do it, but then that's still a day either side of the travel. Yes. It was exhausting. It is exhausting. Very much so. I know when I was in, I don't know where I was, Nebraska, I think, or Colorado was one of them. And someone said to me, you sound different. You must be from Texas. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm from Australia. And they said, oh, how did you even get here? (laughs) It's called a plane. Oh, really? Yep. So yeah, hearing your story and how many countries you went to is amazing. 
and I think it's great. Your book is fabulous. Everyone should grab it. Go get a copy. Go online. If you're in Australia, you can get it. Go to the bookstores. Ask them to get it in for you. You might have even seen Renee on our Today program in Australia. She was on there talking about her book. So go grab her book. It is great. You'll love it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Renee. And I wish you all the success in your life and with your book. Thank you, Michelle. That was so fun. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.